my um, late grandmother always had a thing about people in uniform and I do remember having to just for her getting dressed up in my number ones to go visit her in the nursing home just so she could show me off to the <laughs> to her friends there but yeah no they, they are very proud of me and um, proud of what I've achieved and and proud of my service for the country. Yeah. Mary Elizabeth Lane, Lieutenant Commander with the Irish Naval Service, is this week's guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. Every single appointment in the Defence Force is open to either gender. There is no restrictions on the jobs that, that women can apply for. It's the same as men and it's merit-based. On every recruitment team there's females, on every interview, interview board there's females and it's just been put in. This isn't a statutory requirement. They know that by increasing the female membership it will increase their operational capability. They know this. Merit-based and open to either gender. That's music to our ears here on the podcast. And you can even see from a look at their website how aware they are of the optics with the photos of women featured in uniform and actively engaged in real work with the Defence Forces there. I met Lieutenant Commander Lane in Holbolin in Cork, which is the headquarters of the Irish Naval Service. The Irish name for the place is Seanig, or Fox in Irish, and the Naval Service is certainly living up to the cleverness and wisdom of its mascot, if the experience of Commander Lane is anything to go by. Apart from the terrific humanitarian work they're doing rescuing migrants in the Mediterranean Sea at the moment, the service is engaged in fisheries protection patrols, communications and working on developing renewable energies. And women are very much part of all of that development. I'm Lieutenant Commander Mary Elizabeth Lane. I'm newly promoted and delighted to be so. And um, I joined the Naval Service 13 years ago as a graduate of UCC in Electrical Electronic Engineering. Um, I subsequently applied for the Naval Service. The process took a while. In the meantime, I'd have my postgrad done in education with UL. And then I got the call for the Navy and... Uh, I didn't have to think twice, I, I jumped at the chance. Funnily enough, um, we don't have any um, military or seagoing background in my family at all. There's Engineering is, is our background and teaching, I suppose. And um, like I would always been a strong swimmer, I'd gone kayaking or whatever. But it was only in, in fourth year of college. Um, I remember uh, doing my final year project, which was fairly intense, and being in the lab for hours at a time, you know, every day, and just thinking to myself, Oh my God, when I graduate, is this going to be it? Am I going to be stuck in a lab every day, all day, you know, nine to five, never leaving it? And I went, there has to be something else. And I just happened to look at one of our engineering magazines and they were advertising for the army. And I, th- I thought to myself, I'm not actually interested in the army, but the Navy, I, c- I could see that. Radios, radar, that, that would all apply to electrical, electronic engineer. So I actually contacted the Naval Service. And funnily enough, they were going to be starting um, a campaign to recruit um, different types of engineers um, in the coming months. So that, that was it for me and um, my mind was set and my goal was set and I was delighted when I did get the call and got in. My, um, basically, I just wanted something different. I just wanted a challenge, an adventure, I suppose. And I certainly got that. Looking around here in Hall Bowling, it's just fresh air and sea and you can mm-hmm. see why it would be so beautiful and so very different to being in a lab. Do you love the atmosphere? Do you love the surroundings? I'm, I'm here 13 years and I sometimes you just get used to it and you think this is the norm. And then on another day, you're driving over the bridge to Hall Bowling. Um, you can see across the cove, new cruise liners coming in. One of our ships is heading out in patrol another is coming back in. There's recruits marching on the square I can see from my office. Uh, just on any given day you can be doing completely different things. Every two years we actually change job. In the role I'm in I can be in the college instructing, I can be in a lab if I choose so, I can be doing IT support, um, 
basically a whole range of, of jobs and like I have my, my basic qualification but it's how it's applied here is just it's bringing me to, to new ranges that I never thought possible. And do you go to sea very often? The role I have is electrical officer and there's only one appointment for us at sea so I've done that and I've also served on another couple of ships as well but generally my, my appointment would be a shore based appointment. What did you do when you were at sea? What was that like? The first few times I went to sea was, I like to use the term, I was being marinised so I was sent on the Ellie Ashling and the Ellie Neve and it was basically to get used to seagoing. The first time I actually filled a proper appointment was, was aboard the Ellie Etna as the electrical officer. Um, on board there you're in charge of a team of about four technicians, electrical and electronic. You're responsible basically for anything from the maintenance and operation of the radars, um, satellite equipment, sat TV very importantly. Uh, navigation equipment, lights, um, generators, you know, everything you can think of with an electrical, electronic um, bent on board the ship. Um, in addition to that, as with every job in the Navy, you never have one job. You would have uh, different jobs. You'd be, I was health and safety officer on board. I also was a fisheries boarding officer. And um, when the ship went into refit, I was put as project manager of the refit also. What's it like going out to uh, shipping? The fisheries boardings are basically the bread and butter of the naval service. The primary objective of the, the naval service and indeed the defence forces is defence of the state. And But on a day-to-day basis, our ships do fishery boardings. I think in any given year, we'll do between 900 and 1,000 boardings. And with eight ships, that's quite an achievement. Um, if you look at um, the map of Ireland, that isn't the map that the Naval Service would agree with. <laughs> we believe that um, the landmass that you see is only 10% of what is Ireland's actual sovereign um, sovereign area. So 90% of what Ireland owns is underwater, and it's the Navy's job to protect that. And um, a lot of our patrols are basically patrols to, to protect that area. Because who knows, in the future, there might be um, mineral rights that, that Ireland will have access to. Um, in terms of the fisheries boardings, um, because of that area and the large continental shelf, um, Ireland has a vastly rich um, fishing area, uh, probably one of the best in the world. Uh, so not only do you have Irish fishing vessels, but you have European, Japanese. It's, like, it's really good fishing, and because fishing is such... Um, a commercial uh, business, literally the, um, the larger vessels will come do their fishing and then they actually bring their catch to the area they're selling it to. So they bring it to the another part of the world to sell it. So um, this is obviously, um, they're fishing in Irish areas and I think it's it's one of our duties to ensure that they're adhering to the EU regulations for this. Um, there are shore-based um, uh, organisations that look after basically the fishing trawlers when they come ashore but it's our job to ensure that they're doing as they say they are at sea. Now in recent years the fishing trawlers all complete um, electronic logbooks so the, the job is becoming a lot more um, I suppose efficient in that we're able to download their electronic logbook onto basically like an iPad and do the fisheries um, checks there on that first but you physically then have to go into the holes and count the, the boxes of fish and the types of fish and the nets they're using and making sure they're, they're abiding by the, the laws essentially and we see that as um, you know an important job and um, one that, that we take in all types of weathers but 
another side of that is by doing all these boardings, you're you're doing them. You you basically get launched from your own ship on on a small rib, which could be you know, I don't trying to think all types of weathers, and you go in your rib, board the fishing vessel, you check their paperwork, you check their um, the vessel itself, and then you check the fish and you make sure they're they're okay and you come back to the ship and upload the information afterwards. That then is fed in to our fisheries database. Ireland, our, the naval service in charge of uh, retaining the um, fisheries information for Ireland, Inc. as such, and um, then that goes back to the EU. Do you ever come across um, where they've been cheating or whether the, the log books don't match the fish and what happens then? Do you need to be very courageous? This happens quite often and in which cases they, it goes between being a warning for something quite minor to actually taking um, legal action and arresting them. And you can't underestimate the series of arresting um, a fishing trawler because when they get arrested, their fishing gear and their their fish that they've caught, a lot of the time gets gets taken as well. It is a massive um, penalty, I suppose, they pay if they are caught. So I think even by us being in the areas that they're fishing in, even if they're not boarded, I think it acts as a warning. And um, yeah, but it can be it can be quite difficult. That's someone's um, livelihood, and you're threatening it. So yeah, we take we take our job seriously as they do theirs. Do you get special training in all of that? You must have got some leadership training and in terms of fisheries training, you're you're trained how to be a fisheries officer and you know the different regulations and that. You do basic training when you come in, um, which would teach you the basic skills of leadership. But a lot of what we learn is through basically different experiences. When you come in, you're not landed with full responsibility straight away. You're you're trained into it, you know, gradually. And before you know it, you, you actually have attained quite a lot of responsibility without even quite realising it. And I think that's one of the things that now that I've been in here a while, I actually appreciate because I know that if I was in a civilian role, maybe in a civil, um, similar capacity, I don't think I would have the same level of responsibility entrusted upon me. Has the Navy been very good to you um, in terms of giving you leadership and you know, stretching your abilities. An example of that I would think of is um, when I was in charge of one of the, our, it's called a communications technical workshop, um, in charge of 14 personnel and a budget, which at one point was up to a million euro. And, you know, when you're an engineer in your mid to late 20s, having that uh, responsibility, it was, I thoroughly enjoyed it and reveled in it. And um, it it was done so without you know me having to think about it it was just you know it was accepted that I was I was capable of it and I, I quite enjoy that. You look like you just love getting out of bed in the morning to go to this job do you? I have to say um, that's one thing about going to work in the morning you're nearly going to work just to see what's after happening um, especially in recent days um, to hear the Elietnas just back from the med the Neves over there are doing tremendous work we're so proud of them we can't imagine and their families are so proud of them and I presume the country as a whole is really proud of them. It's something that um, the Naval Service personnel, it's its obviously not the normal work they do, but we're well trained, we're well disciplined and they, they couldn't be prouder and we couldn't be prouder of the work they're doing. And do you talk to the, those, it was the Ellie Neve that's out there at the mm-hmm. moment, and do you have daily communication with them? They have their broadband out there, so they're in daily email and um, comms with headquarters. So we know exactly what how they're getting on. At the moment, there's a team gone out to help them deal with the, the recent issues and just give them a break. They're dealing, I think they're dealing with all the, 
the different um, sides of it quite well. It's obviously from maybe a technical point of view, it's quite interesting to work in that environment with the heat and um, trying to get fresh water, you know, your desalinization and your reverse osmosis. And from, from an engineering point of view, it's quite interesting. But then from the humanitarian human side of it, that's also quite interesting and quite... Um, Quite a challenge, but one that I think they're they're coping with quite well. Yeah, because they, I mean, there was a baby born there last week, wasn't there? Yeah. But I mean, they're seeing life and life and death side by side, and just the human tragedy of it all, like um, the, the the sheer volume of of people, you know, in abject poverty, you know, crammed into boats. That's not a nice sight for anyone to see, and they're just dealing with it as best they can. And you know, from a logistics point of view, trying to get them all on onto a ship it's 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 quite difficult and to make sure that they're all catered for and then are safely I suppose transported to land is it's really important but I suppose it's important as well that they have they have um, a human caring side that they are aware you know they're very they're normal people and they're seeing these these are human beings that they're trying to trying to deal with as best they can and as carefully and, and considerately as possible as well, they, they do see that side. I think people are so proud of the Navy in that regard. Um, for any young women who are thinking about coming into the Navy, and mm-hmm. in the first place, do many young women apply to join the Navy? But if they do, what sort of careers can they look forward to? Not that many um, young women uh, join the Navy um, at the moment. We have, in terms of percentages across the Defence Force, um, in general, it'll be about 6% um, women in the Defence Forces and if you go into the Officer Corps that would rise to between 10 and 15%. Um, the fact is that the, they're not applying in the first place. Now there's, um, the Defence Forces is fully committed to an increased uh, female membership and to this end um, they have put basically on every recruitment team there's females on every interview interview board there's females and it's just been put in this isn't a statutory requirement they know that by increasing the female membership it will increase their operational capability they know this just as in um, the private sector having a balanced um, a balanced membership of males and females um, is to the benefit of the company the similar would be the same for defense forces or any military now the Defence Forces would be different to other militaries in that every single appointment in the Defence Forces is open to either gender. There is no restrictions on the jobs that that women can apply for. It's the same as men and it's merit-based. At the moment, uh, in the Defence Force as a whole, the highest rank um, held by women at the moment is Lieutenant Colonel, which would be a commander in the Naval Service, and there's three women at that rank. At my rank, um, there's 31. And in the Navy? In, no, 31 across the Defence Forces okay. and five in the Navy. Um, of the other lieutenant commanders um, in the Navy with me, they've all been ship's captains, which uh, when people join the Navy, that's obviously, I think for an operations person, that would be the pinnacle of their career. And I believe they, they thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, they were found to be, you know, very inspiring leaders and captains of their ships. And we're very proud of them too. Is there ever any resentment from the the males on the team of having a woman in command? I don't think resentment is the word. Um, the Naval Service, as um, it's known for having a good sense of humour, the normal um, pattern for a ship at sea is a six-week cycle where you do four weeks at sea, two weeks at home. Obviously, if they're on longer deployments, it'll it'll change. But when you're on um, forty personnel on a ship, small ship 
for four weeks at a time, there's a lot of banter between personnel. So I, I don't think you'd join if, unless you're able for that. <laughs> you certainly wouldn't stay anyway. Now you said you always liked swimming and kayaking. Mm. Were, did, were, you were always comfortable in the yeah. sea. Was that a major attraction for you? Um, it wasn't the, the chief attraction, but um, since I've been in the Navy, the outdoor element and the emphasis on, I suppose, physicality and sport has really, um, I've really taken to it. Um, I'm on the basketball team, I'm in the Navy Tri Club, um, I just completed the Defence Force 10 mile road race. Um, these are things that are just incorporated into your normal life here, it's just a normal thing that you're expected to be physically fit. There's a fitness test every year, it's not particularly arduous but it's just it's just something to kind of set your barometer by. And um, I just, I think it's, it's a very healthy environment in that um, everyone from sailor up to flag officer is physically fit and encouraged to be physically active and it's a, it's a good place to be for that. If you're to give a sales pitch to young women who are thinking about where they're going to go in the future and you'd like them to join the naval forces, what what's, is, the, is it, do you say the naval, naval service? Naval service. Yeah. What, what are the big sales points? What sort of people are you looking for? Um, I think for anyone, uh, men or women joining the naval service, you have to want a sense of, um, a sense of adventure and a willingness to, to try something and to you know put your all into it. There's no point joining half-heartedly. The Naval Service needs you know really enthusiastic, um, competent, well-qualified people. We're always on the lookout for technically qualified people, engineers especially. We'd love to have any of them if they're if they're willing to come out and work hard. That's what that's what we're looking for. And um, the attraction for them was that it's a very challenging, responsible. Um, interesting job, one that you're not going to find replicated elsewhere. They say that when, in like in, in business and in companies like Microsoft and uh, Accenture and places like that, that when women get to their mid-30s, and especially if they've had a few children, that they tend mm-hmm. to fall away. Does the same thing happen in the Naval Service? Or have you put policies and procedures in place to encourage people to stay? The Naval Service is, um, I suppose, a bit different in that I'm probably one of the oldest um, women in the Naval Service, so I'm just getting in my mid-30s now. So, and I have a four-year-old child, but it hasn't, it hasn't happened in the Navy thus far. I suppose maybe because we haven't reached the age where it has become a problem. But the Defence Forces has, um, has basically tried to adjust to this, and there's the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which they're trying to adhere to and have come up with a plan, an action plan. Um, basically, it's on women, peace and security, and it, it revolves around the full involvement and participation in women. So to this end, they have introduced many family-friendly policies um, from maternity leave, paternity leave, um, shorter working year, um, leave of absence, you know, all these things and facilities are there and they're, they're quite attractive and... Um, you know, are fully available to people, you know, when, when they have their approval of their commanding officer to do so. A recent uh, development uh, for the army, which has been quite interesting, is a family-friendly overseas appointment. And normally an overseas appointment would be about six months uh, serving, and they're serving about 15 countries at the moment. And um, the family-friendly appointments that they've come up with, you basically share the appointment with someone else, you do three months overseas. So that has only been newly introduced this year. So that we'll see how that develops. But they are... They're seriously taking this issue very seriously and and trying to um, basically trying to 
adapt the life to make it more um, family friendly with the view of retaining both men and women because it is a family a family issue I suppose I think that's the most amazing thing and Joan Burton said that to me too that you know even the family friendly policies that they've brought in in the mm-hmm. Dáil actually help men even more than they have women in some cases I'm very lucky I'm very fortunate in the fact I'm a very supportive husband he's um, ex-military himself so he's a full understanding of my job and my role um, other people aren't as fortunate and I think that's where the Defence Forces are stepping up and they're trying to provide that support and coming up with these basically a little bit of flexibility to help people and it's in the Defence Forces um, to the benefit of the Defence Forces because they they spend so much time and so much money recruiting and training people that to retain them is just it just it's a sensible thing to do and to retain that balance and that experience. Tell me about your uniform. The, the first time I met you was at the uh, conference in the EU headquarters, yeah. the Commission offices in Molesworth mm-hmm. Street and you looked so fantastic in your uniform. Do you have any special accommodations made for you in uniforms? Well I was wearing, when you saw me the other day I was wearing uh, my number ones which is basically what you'll wear at ceremonial or meetings and things like that which is um, especially designed uh, for females so as opposed to the uh, male's uniform it's single breasted, obviously a skirt instead of trousers and I think it looks quite smart and it's tailored to us and uh, we also have black tie uniform and so for guys it'll be like standard black tie but for us it's a very elegant black dress with um, bolero jacket with our rank markings on the jacket um, quite swish if I do say so myself and then for general day to day it's what I'm wearing today which is basically like combats and this is called um, GDR which is general duty rig and so it's just it's very practical this is also the uniform you wear at sea because it's um, it's fire retardant your, your steel toe cap um, tactical boots and you know it's 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 basically a very practical uniform and then in addition to that then if you go serving with the army on courses with them or overseas or even at the range you wear what's called DPM which is their army's um, standard rig which is disturb pattern material and so um, I have a whole wardrobe basically of uniforms at home. I think that um, the, there's actually only been women in the naval service since 1995, so it's um, it's been a learning process for the men in terms of uniforms. But I think we've put our own mark on it, and we're we're quite happy with that. You mentioned training that you do with the army. Is there much training that you do with the other forces, and do you do overseas training? When I came in first. Um, I came in straight from college on a, what's called a direct entry scheme, so they needed electrical engineers, so I was hired straight in and commissioned straight away. But uh, then I was sent to the Curra, to the Defence Force Training Centre, where I did two years basic training. And I suppose it's that's what happens with anyone, no matter what scheme they come in under. You have to learn how to march, how to wear your uniform, how to handle weapons, um, tactical training, military law. You know, there's a whole um, series of training that has to be covered. Um, that's that's our basic training. Um, further to that, um, I specialised in CIS with the Army, which is comms information systems. So I would have trained with them so that I am qualified to take up a CIS appointment overseas, basically, with the Army. Um, the Naval Service, um, until recently, didn't have their own overseas missions. So, But they would attend and basically um, go with the Army on their missions. The Naval Service actually would have quite an active involvement and um, basically doing operations. Well, it's it's more, it's not operations as such, it's exercises with other navies. So we would do quite a lot of them with the Royal Navy. That would be our standard one for doing it with. And um, under the, the umbrella of the UN, that's how you, you would do your exercises. And um, 
it's quite interesting um, having exchanges um, with other navies. We actually had um, we've had an exchange program with the Canadian Navy and the New Zealand Navy, the Canadian Coast Guard, the Norwegian Coast Guard, and you know, a navy is a navy. We have a small navy, but um, it's the same the same type of thing. It's still going to sea. It's still wearing a uniform. It's still discipline and uh, working in a team. Tell me about using your voice. Um, women often get uh, sidelined because they can't speak up loud enough or like physically just can't speak loud enough or they get bypassed in mm-hmm. meetings. I presume that doesn't happen to you. And how do you how do you cope with making yourself heard? I was thinking just from the from the part of on, um, on the playground, that's one place you have to be heard. And I do remember as a sub lieutenant um, doing the Guard of Honour for the St. Patrick's Day Parade, which would be one of our biggest days of the year. You learn you you learn fairly fast how to protect your voice when you have a whole playground to protect it too. In terms of meetings, um, generally the meetings would be quite organised in that the there is an agenda for the meeting beforehand. Basically, the the attendance for the meeting are indicated before the meeting also. So when you when you attend your meeting, it basically goes round the table to your section what you have to bring to the meeting and. Um, it's, it's quite orderly. There doesn't seem to be any rabble and there was no talking over other people. It's just uh, maybe that could be a military thing, but there, there is no talking over other people. From what, from what I hear from other people in business, that is not the case. And they, yeah. they get bypassed and sidelined, even at very senior level. So that's something maybe that other no. people could learn from the Navy. I think uh, it's, it's important. Maybe it is. Um, maybe it appeals to people joining the Naval Service. It liked everything to be very organised and very... Um, very set down and lay down how, how things will go but yeah there's an agenda before your meeting and the person who's going to talk about the various areas has been outlined and that's how it goes. Is your family very proud of you? I have to say they are very proud of me. My um, late grandmother always had a thing about people in un- uniform and I do remember having to just for her getting dressed up in my number ones to go visit her in the nursing home just so she could show me off to the <laughs> to her friends there. But yeah, no, they, they are very proud of me and um, proud of what I've achieved and and proud of my service for the country. Yeah. What puts women off going into the naval forces? I think it's 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 more societal issue. What puts women off it? Um, I think they have a belief, a wrongly held belief that um, they wouldn't be able for the job physically, and that it is um, maybe the the idea of being a male dominated um, job would put them off as well. But I have to say, I came from engineering where it would have been a similar percentage-wise of um, women in my class, and and it's no different from going to the navy. Then it's again, it's male-dominated, but it's nothing that any competent, intelligent woman wouldn't wouldn't be able to deal with. And I think it's just a societal thing that people have this impression, a stereotype of some jobs are suitable for men and some jobs are suitable for women, and that's just it's just a case of you know, trying to think outside the box and look at the job itself and saying, am I capable of doing that job? And I don't see any reason why someone who, you know, who wants to do this job and is qualified to do so wouldn't be able to get on well and thrive in in this environment. Apart from jobs as engineers, what are the other sort of career types that would Mm -hmm. be available? Are you looking for people with languages or other degrees? Across the Defence Forces and the Naval Service, basically the jobs are divided into two areas. It's operations and um, technical. And when you come into the Navy, first off, you become, you're either ops or engineering. But underneath that, there's a whole gambit of careers. Anything and everything are are required here. Everything from doctors, dentists, pharmacists, the healthcare, social workers, um, 
to IT, engineering, um, translators, um, lawyers, basically everything from, and even down to sailors and soldiers, you're looking for everything from paramedics, drivers, divers. Um, the Naval Service is very proud of their dive team. It's the, the principal technical dive team in the, the country. And um, that isn't considered, when someone comes the diver, that isn't their primary qualification. This is just an additional qualification. And that would be the case with a lot of our roles here. You have your primary qualification, your primary job, and then you have additional qualifications that you maybe specialise in afterwards. So I think that could be, if people are interested in looking at that job, saying you, you come in as, let's say, an engineer, but then you want to specialise afterwards in a particular area, like uh, remote-operated vehicles, UAVs. The Navy is trying to head towards becoming a knowledge institution. We have our National Maritime College of Ireland across um, the other side of the bridge. We have the Beaufort Laboratory we built next to it, and the Naval Service is part of that. It's coming under the umbrella of IMARC, which is the Irish Maritime Energy Resource Cluster. And um, so if people are interested in that and we're being fully encouraged to undertake masters and PhDs in those areas as well. And um, from having quite a practical, um, practical qualifications in engineering or operations to then going into research, but then maybe bringing a kind of a practical element to that research. How can we apply, you know, the theory to, you know, bringing, um, making our ships more energy efficient, um, coming up with more renewable energy prospects, things like that. That's that's where we're heading as well, because the Naval Service has to be seen as relevant to the, the Irish taxpayer as such. And to that end, we're doing our utmost to ensure that we're trying to be there helping to generate jobs and generate revenue for the country. It sounds like there's great leadership from the top in mm. the Navy. Um, how does that happen? Is there just an ethos of great leadership? And with regard to yourself, what are your ambitions for your leadership okay. in the future? Um, I suppose the, the Naval Service is uh, very proud as well that um, the next Chief of Staff will be a Naval Officer. It's the first time in the history of the Defence Forces this has happened, so as Rear Admiral Mellet has, um, has gone, will be going into that role, and uh, we're very proud of him. And him and the other are our flag officer is Commodore Hugh Tully and they're inspirational leaders. They're very hardworking, um, inspiring, but but they're also very normal in that they're easy to talk to and they understand because they have come into the Naval Service and worked their, their way through. They're not afraid to look at things differently and um, to see how how the Naval Service can do other and you know, fulfil other roles. To, to better the economy and better the world, I suppose. Research has shown that like when there's 30% of any particular minority group, mm -hmm. that it starts to form critical mass. Mm -hmm. We're a long way from 30% yeah. women in the Navy. Um, do you think that's true, that it makes a huge difference the more women? And would you like to see more women in the Navy for that reason? Yeah, I think it's important in any organisation that there is a balance, a gender balance, and even uh, just a diversity amongst the, the, the membership. In general, I think that benefits any organisation. We're working towards that, we're a long way from it, but we are making huge positive steps towards it. Um, I think women bring a different perspective to, to things and um, I think the, the Naval Service and the Defence Forces have benefited from the, the women, from sailors and soldiers to officers in the, the Defence Forces. I think they've, um, they've paid back the investment in them in spades. When you say they bring something different, what sorts of different influences do women bring? women approach 
things in a different way in terms of conflict resolution or in terms of tackling a project. I think they look at different options. They don't just go barge straight into what they see as this is how it's always been done and thus far shall always be. They, they look at things and they think maybe we could do these things differently or, you know, try different things. And, and I don't think they're they're withheld by maybe how things are always done. They try things differently and they're, they're not afraid to do that. Do you ever see yourself outside of the Navy? And uh, looking at you, I think the answer is going to be no. But, <laughs> but if you did, would there be skills that you've, gar- you've, you've garnered here in the Navy mm-hmm. that you think would be readily transferable outside? It's interesting. When I, um, I finished college, I was just thinking of engineering. And from working in the Naval Service now, I'm thinking there's a whole range of things that I've worked in from HR to recruitment to training that I don't think I would have gotten into other ways and which I think I'd be quite happy to to go along any of those lines after I retire. You were on a recruitment panel recently. Was this for new graduates or people? And what was that yeah. like? Who's who's going for the job at the moment and who are you not seeing? The Naval Service will be taking in a class of recruits and the Army will be taking in a class or, or a class of cadets um, this September. And that process will go on recently. And I have to say the diversity and... Um, the quality of candidates going for the the roles was very impressive and we were delighted to see that calibre of person applying. Actually, the um, the Army will be taking in um, recruits in the coming few weeks, as in they'll be starting the recruitment phase. So I, I would say to any person out there that is thinking of um, looking for a job, maybe they don't want the standard nine to five job to think about it. Um, the process of applying, um, it isn't straightforward in that it's not just do one interview and you're in. There is um, physical tests, um, psychometrics groups, you know, there's, it's, it is a process, but I have to say if they stick by it and, you know, if they get in, it'll be well worth their while. Does it help if you don't get seasick? I think um, the vast majority of people get seasick and um, it's one of the things, the, the reason why um, resilience and persistence would be a, a key quality for anyone joining the Naval Service, particularly as anyone who suffered from seasickness knows, um, it will get better. It's just a case of when that happens. So, yeah, when you go out to sea first, it um, just the sensation can be absolutely awful. But you'll find that um, give it a few weeks, and it's amazing how quick you you will adapt. You'll find that if you're really busy, um, your mind gets taken off it, and funnily enough, the the sickness can go away as well when you're busy. Patricia King of SIP2. Vice President of SIP2 said, I asked her what was her favourite motto, and she said one that had stood to her was, rough seas make good sailors. Mm. Uh, would you have any phrase or motto that you live by? One of my main things is well, um, whatever comes along, just, just go with it and take it on and don't say no, just go with it. And um, you'll amaze yourself by what you can achieve by just um, just trying something. And it's it's rare that you fail, you know, just if, if you don't try, you failed in not trying. Yeah. One of the things that uh, keeps coming up when I do interviews with successful women is that they say that like some women will stay in their silo, do their job really, really well, but never venture beyond it. Mm-hmm. And really that you, you have to stretch yourself sometimes. Would you agree with that? Sometimes you have to go out your outside of your, your comfort zone, I guess. But I think, though, it's just a case of confidence. And maybe women don't have that confidence sometimes in that... Um, I'm not talking about blagging or pretending you are what you're not, but it's a case of, yeah, I can try that and I can do that and put yourself in situations that you're not comfortable with. And it's amazing how many times you'll adapt to the situation and you'll you'll be quite, you know, you'll be you'll meet the target and you'll 
you'll be quite at the level that you didn't think you were you were initially. Unconscious bias. Have you come across this phrase, unconscious bias? We all have unconscious yeah. biases. Um, is there any awareness of this in the Naval Service and do you get unconscious bias training? Um, one area where this uh, people would be aware of this would be for interviews. And all of us, um, before we're put on interview training or interview boards, are actually, you have to do your interview training. And that is one thing that is, is mentioned. And it's across the board, it's not just gender. And it's the halo and horns effect. You know, I like basketball, she likes basketball, must be a great candidate, that sort of thing. So it's something that um, it has been, you know, brought into everyone who sits on an interview board so that they're very well aware of it so then you can adapt and you know be, become aware of your your own unconscious biases and you know adjust them accordingly for anybody who's uh, in in their career are there any three key pieces of advice you would offer the main thing is to have confidence in yourself and to push yourself and to try try things and you know give them a go and you know you know there's there's no point in just sticking in um, an area or a job that you don't like you know, for whatever reason, I, I think it's it's one of the best reasons in the world to jo- to have a job where you get up and you you love coming to work. I think anyone where they're not liking getting up to and going to work in the morning, they have to think about their career and think about changing it. You have to, you know, you have to enjoy what you do and um, I suppose have a sense of pride and satisfaction when you do that. That was Lieutenant Commander Mary Elizabeth Lane of the Irish Naval Service and she would give you hope for the future of women in work and leadership and for the forward-thinking men and women in the Defence Forces who seem to be genuinely ahead of the curve because, as she says herself about gender diversity, they know that it works. Well, that's all for this week. Do get in touch with us through the website womeninleadership.ie with your comments, suggestions and ideas for future guests. You can also email us at info at womeninleadership.ie. You can follow us on Twitter too, at leadingwomenpod. We're still in the market for sponsors, so get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Info at womeninleadership.ie. Till next week, goodbye and take care.